Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Robin Buller, and today I'm very excited to have Marian Kaplan as our guest. She is the Skirball Professor of Modern Jewish History at New York University, and the author of numerous important works about everyday life and gender in modern Jewish European history, including Between Dignity and Despair, Jewish Life in Nazi Germany, as well as The Making of the Jewish Middle Class, Women, Family, and Identity in Imperial Germany. Today, she joins us to discuss her newest book, Hitler's Jewish Refugees, Hope and Anxiety in Portugal, published by Yale University Press. Marion, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. I was born in New Jersey. I went to Douglas College, which was a part of Rutgers University, where I majored in German language and lit and in history. And then I went to Columbia University, where I got my PhD in German history. So that's basically the academic um, CV. <laughs> Um, and so with that said, then, how did you come to write about Jewish refugees in Portugal during the Nazi era? I mean, most of your work is on um, Jews in Germany. What brought you to this topic? Well, that's actually um, a good question. So my dissertation was on the Jewish feminist movement in Germany. Um, and that was it was a very important group of people, one of the five major organizations of German Jews, but it had never been written about. And I guess I came to my academic maturity during the feminist movement. And so I was very interested in who were these feminists and what did they want? And I was also interested in Mm -hmm. family history and in gender, which is, you mentioned the making of the Jewish middle class, which is women, family, and identity in Imperial Germany, um, where I argued we couldn't understand embourgeoisement without analyzing women's roles both in creating the cultured middle-class family in private and reaching beyond the home to the public spheres of education and social work and employment for some. So that approach led me to the situation of Jewish families, which is how the next book on the Nazi era came to be. And I was also interested in the gender ways in which men and women approached their plight, uh, with women pushing Mm -hmm. to leave before men but also with women taking on more public roles than ever before, because men were in danger. And that book already touched upon the issue of refugees. I see. Um, so, So you were already looking at refugees then in terms of leaving Germany, and then what brought you specifically to Portugal, how did you find this? Yeah, so that's uh, a little bit of a leap, but not a big one. I should start off by explaining my parents were refugees. And that fact imprinted Ah. itself on my life. And it was very, very important from the get-go. 
also the refugee crisis of today is not new and has deeply concerned me for the past decades. Um, so you put those two together and you can see that what I wrote in Between Dignity and Despair about how people wanted to get out would kind of lead me to what happened when they did get out. Um, and so my first book about refugees focused on a small group of under a thousand, mostly Central and Eastern European Jews who settled on a communal farm in the Dominican Republic. And that book was called hmm. Dominican Haven, the Jewish Refugee Settlement in Sosua from 1940 to 1945. And from there, I arrived at this new book. Since so many of the refugees in the Dominican Republic had been stranded in Lisbon before they arrived. So I was kind of curious, what were they doing in Lisbon? Why Lisbon? That's what got me right, started. Right. Right. Interesting. So, so you were sort of on either side of that history at first. Yeah. And then you found this, this sort of middle port. Exactly. Um, that, interesting. So I wonder if you could give our listeners a little bit of background information on this particular history, just because it is so, um, you know, it's not very widely known. So why were Jews seeking refuge in, in Portugal specifically? And what's sort of the broader historical context that we might need to understand? Well, that's a very good question, because actually Jews knew little to nothing about Portugal. Portugal wasn't even a place they used to visit on their summer vacations. One refugee hmm. said she knew about cork and about wine. That's all she knew about Portugal. But by June 1940, when the Germans had already overrun France and the Low Countries, Jews and many, many non-Jews fled southward. But southern France felt dangerous to many, especially to Jews with uh, no right to residency. And with the German secret police, the Gestapo and the French police roaming around places like Marseille and Bordeaux. So many Jews hoped to move on, whereas many non-Jews eventually went back home. Um, when the Jews wanted to move on, they needed exit visas from France, which were very hard to get, even though the French wanted them out. Mm. Spain was generally hostile to refugees. And of course, if you know the, that history, 1936 to 1939, Spain had suffered through a terrible civil war. It was devastated. So Portugal right. became what I've called and others have called the port of last resort, the farthest point west hmm. on the continent. So somewhere between 40 and 80,000 refugees flooded into Portugal between 1940 and I'd say 1943. I see. So, so then when you sort of came to this topic, what were the major research questions that you were asking? What were you, what were you trying to answer? Okay, so actually, um, most Holocaust histories have focused correctly on the East, on the camp system and the killing fields. Yet recently, historians have begun right. to address the peripheries of the Holocaust, and drawing attention to the periphery doesn't detract from the genocide, but in fact highlights for me it highlights the range and the reach of the Holocaust and its impact even on those mm. who got away. And of course, I'm dealing with those who got away. In other words, the Holocaust was actually global, with refugees finding havens extending from Shanghai and the Philippines to North Africa and the Americas. 
So I think that's important mm. in terms of um, expanding Holocaust research. And so one of the questions, and there are many mm-hmm. others that I'll re- mention in a minute, one of the questions was, um, you know, what's going on in these far away places? Um, I would like to say, before I may- mention my major research questions, that there are three important books mm-hmm. already on the subject. One in Portuguese by Irene Pimentel. It's a wonderful book. One um, in English by Avraham Milgram, who actually worked at Yad Vashem for a long time and focuses more Mm. on the political and the economic and the um, international issues. And one in German by Patrick von Zermuhlen, which was actually the first book on the subject and didn't get, I think, as Mm. much attention as it should have. But my major research questions were different from these three. I was interested in the locations or the sites that refugees encountered, like from mountain passages Mm. to borders, from consulates to cafes, and the feelings that these sites evoked. Um, I used to write about Mm. Jewish daily life beyond or in spite of anti-Semitism. Jews encountered anti-Semitism, but learned to live their lives and succeed in most cases. So as refugees, We usually think of their anxiety, their discouragement, the dead ends they faced. But I also wanted to show the complexity. I wanted to show their persistence and their resilience. So using sights Mm. and emotions that come out of those sights, I hope to tell a kind of emotional history of fleeing. That's so interesting. And it's such an interesting approach because I feel like not only are you targeting a subject that hasn't received a lot of historical attention, you know, like the specific history of um, Jewish refugees in, in Portugal. Um, But also the methods that you're using are, are unusual and will give us hopefully new tools for people who study the Holocaust elsewhere. I hope so. And in fact, there are books now that have come out, for example, on Shanghai and the Philippines and Bolivia. There are actually, uh, Mm. it's starting to look like a small library of books where refugees went for, um, you know, for their temporary or permanent exile. Um, But the the approach uh, is kind of, um, it's a complicated approach. On the one hand, it offers a new approach that we've taken for granted, which is emotions. So some people could say, right. hey, of course they were upset. What's new about that, right? So to some extent, right. we've always taken those kind of emotions for granted. Just like when people get married, we take for granted that they fell in love. But here, hmm. I hope that the book Not shows, always the case. Not also. always the case, right. But here we, we show, I think, that the book... Um, teaches about the complexity of these emotions and of the refugees' stamina. So they may have been miserable, Mm. but they strategized. They strategized physical and emotional survival. Um, Also, I love micro-histories. I love individual stories. So, So we collect these individual stories, right? The varied ways refugees reacted then but also today. So even if historical political elements are different, um, some of the refugees' feelings are the same. Um, when I wrote about Portuguese, the Jewish refugees in Portugal, I kept thinking about sort of the 65 million currently displaced people who fled their homes. 
and were long right. safe countries. And they today and then felt stuck between home and nowhere. Because when the people mm-hmm. were in Lisbon, they didn't know where they were going. They lined up in front of dozens of consulates. They weren't always holding an American visa. Um, and so just like today, people get stuck in refugee camps in Jordan or in northern France or wherever, and they don't know where they're going, where nowhere is. So um, mm. that's important. And the other similarity to me was what governments were, or what David Wyman once called paper walls, how the United States erected paper walls against refugees during World War II. But these paper walls, mm. which are bureaucratic requirements and quotas, they're all there for immigrants today, too. So it heightens their insecurity today, just as it did then. So I was hoping that the that when you read this book, readers can understand the situation of refugees more broadly, that no one mm. leaves home unless... Um, as Warsan Shire, the young poet laureate of London, once said, unless home turned into the mouth of a shark. I think she added something like, no one puts their child on a boat unless water is safer than land. And that's pretty stark. Right. And I think that's the same for the refugees today and the refugees then. They, they um, got themselves smuggled over the Pyrenees. Some went by boat into Portugal in dangerous situations. But the danger behind them, the Germans, was more dangerous than the dangers in front of them. So they had to flee and they had to become refugees. That's so interesting. I mean, I've I've now read your book um, and, and I feel like just the way that, yeah, that your answer to that question really helps me understand even more the the significance of this project and just how a study of of a of welcome of, of emotions though is just so intimately tied to to family and gender experiences sort mm. of the examples that you gave there i can't i can't help but you know have pictures of mothers and children in my mind when we're talking about these right um, right and a lot of times the people who climbed the mountains were mothers and children. Sometimes they were families and children, but I highlighted one woman who climbed the mountains with two children and a three-month-old baby because her husband was in an wow. uh, internment camp. And a lot of times right. the men had gotten out earlier because they were in more physical danger, one thought, than the women and children. Mm. So then the women and children right. would have to follow, would try to follow them and would do this alone. So there's tremendous amount of, Right. Of family uh, breakup, not breakup, but um, split up for the time being till they could meet again. Right. And of course, then one of the emotions that people are feeling is this anxiety of will reunification exactly. happen? Exactly. Um, so so I'm, I'm always curious to hear about what other historians' research methods are and what sort of sources they use. So what, what were your research methods? What kind of archives did you did you go to what was what was okay, your major source? So I source went to space? lots and lots of the typical archives, I guess, <laughs> for a topic like this. I went to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum for a semester, thinking I was going to write up my findings, but instead I found so mm. much more that it put me back maybe a year in terms of writing. But it was amazing mm-hmm. at Leo Beck Institute in New York, um, the Portuguese State Archives, because I did want to. I was very interested in how the Portuguese government and people reacted. 
Um, University of Southern mm. California, the Shoah Foundation, which has all of these um, hour-long, somewhat longer interviews uh, that Steven Spielberg paid for. So that's among others. Mm-hmm. And I'd have two stories I'd like to share. One is about an archive. Please. And the other is about the Shoah interviews. So the first, I kind of start my book, I think, with a story. I got a phone call from two archivists at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City, Battery Park. And they said, you know, we have a couple of hundred letters here that have been unopened and they're from Lisbon. Are you interested? And I said, yes, I'm very interested. And I ran down there. And um, every historian's dream. Yeah, it's, it was an amazing story. So these unopened letters to Lisbon from late 1941, early 1942. So that's when the deportation started in uh, Germany, in particular in Austria. And these letters, Mm -hmm. I had to open with a a single-edged razor. They had never been opened. So I'm sitting there very carefully opening the letters. And Mm. these letters cried from Eastern Europe and Germany and Austria cried out in pain and in dread. And in hunger, Mm. because it seems like many of the relatives to whom they were writing these had been sending packages of food, which was allowed to be sent to Berlin, Mm. to Vienna, to the Warsaw Ghetto even. The addressees had left already. That's why the letters were sitting in the Joint Distribution Committee, uh, which was a Jewish aid organization. It was sitting in the JDC offices, these packs of letters. So I was the first to open them. Mm. It was a deeply moving experience. I had never experienced anything like this in all of my former research. These were final words to loved ones. And the loved ones had moved on. And I wanted to convey their messages and their feelings. And the feelings were all over these letters. So even though this set of letters had not been read by their intended audience, many, many just like them had been read by the sojourners in Lisbon, heightening their fear and maybe their guilt for leaving loved ones. So the letters were powerful in terms of the kinds of feelings people would have had reading them. And the reason I um, understood that these were not the first letters is because the letters would thank people in Lisbon for sending packages or for sending another letter. um, And Mm. they would comment on what people in Lisbon had told them already. And one mother commented on how her son should be careful of getting seasick on a ship. And so there was Mm. a way in which I understood these had been correspondences, but the addressees had left. So those letters were extremely powerful um, at, for, to me as a researcher, and I was able to use them also in the book. So that's one story of research. And the other was just a beautiful interview that I, I just love, I still love, um, from the Shoah Foundation. And it was the story of a little girl crossing Spain with her two parents by foot. And maybe I can just read you one little part where this little girl realizes it was December and she was sleeping in yet another barn 
warmed by the breath of cows. So her family would stop in barns because mm. it was the only place that was warm. And she realized it was December and began to cry and said to her father, it must be Hanukkah and we have no menorah. And then this mm. moment turned into a lasting memory when her father said, what do you mean we don't have a menorah? We have the most beautiful menorah in the world. Opening the barn door a crack, he said, pick out the shiniest star. That will be the shamus, the candle with the others. Now, find the other candles. And Annette did so. She, she said, I found four on each side and we lit a menorah in the sky. This may have been mm -hmm. the one bright spot in her wanderings. So I just love this story. And she describes the wanderings. They walked through Spain for three months. And then they snuck wow. into Portugal and then they were able to go to aid organizations and eventually get the papers they needed. But it took months of hard work to stand yeah. on these lines at consulates, et cetera, to get those papers. Wow. So that's, that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, I call it the menorah in the sky. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's almost like a fable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's stories like those that for me are 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 why it is so important to study individuals experiences and micro yeah. histories so yeah. that we aren't especially with especially with histories of you know of genocide or refugee experiences when I find that sometimes it's hard when you're studying it to not get a little bit desensitized that's true you know that's true it's so if so you get down to one to person it become, come back yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah all right so I wonder if you could let's let's talk a little bit about the specifics of this of this history of what you found. So let's talk about the history of the refugees flight to Portugal. Um, when did they make that journey and where were they coming from? Um, how did they, I mean, we've talked about this, this one family, um, but how did refugees arrive in Portugal? How did they get there? Okay. So there are many, many different ways. So for many, Lisbon was the end mm -hmm. of myriad journeys I have two maps at the beginning mm. of the book that show people traveling from East, Eastern Europe and Germany via stops in Belgium, Switzerland, France, Spain, sometimes going back again to some other place because they got caught and then starting over again. Mm. So this flood of refugees came mostly after June 1940, as I said, after the Germans came through the Low Countries and France um, and, you know, Northern France, at least, and occupied Northern France. Though some came to Portugal even before 1938. Either their businesses had collapsed or they saw what they thought was going to be an even more terrible situation. Um, so before 1938, they were lucky. The Portuguese had unlimited visas, but after 1938, they limited, Portuguese limited visas to 30 days only. And only if you had another visa to travel onward and if you had ship tickets. So that means a lot of people who didn't have that other visa to the U.S. or to Canada or to Brazil or didn't have ship tickets had to sneak in. Now, some, mm. on the other hand, with the correct papers, came by train, others by car, many on foot. And by the time they arrived, they were usually hungry and had depleted funds or none at all. And they had across, let's say if they're getting out of France, they had across four borders, which were terrifying. 
So the first border was France, getting out of France. The second was the Spanish border, getting into Spain. The third was the Spanish border, getting out of Spain. And the fourth was the Portuguese border, getting into Portugal. So four borders. You can imagine why Europeans are happy with the European Union today, because they can avoid this border stuff. But in those four borders, there could be at any point the wrong paper or a suspicious Mm. guard that could send you back. So that was terrifying. Um, And if they, Mm. and and, and there were also gender differences there. For example, uh, Mm. some young women traveling alone were kind of uh, propositioned, but got around it um, and were afraid. And other cases where the family, the grandmother had the wrong papers, but everybody else had the right papers, but they didn't want to leave without the grandmother. So there are all kinds of Of terrifying moments. Um, But then when they arrived, they were overwhelmed by the kindness of the Portuguese people. And this includes peasantry and middle-class people. At the borders at Vilar Formoso, and for people who might love to go to Portugal at some point, it's definitely worth seeing the museum at Vilar Formoso, which is one of the borders where lots of refugees crossed. Um, Mm -hmm. People came with fruit, with milk, with soup, and these refugees had no money. If they even had money and offered a little, it was some depleted French franc that didn't count for much anymore. But the Portuguese didn't want their money. They were being kind. And middle-class people, I tell one story, but it sums up a lot. One story of a woman who had very little money and she went into a hat store and she wanted to buy a hat, but it was too expensive. So she left and the man, the salesman ran after her and gave it to her for free. So those kinds of stories are amazing. Um, They also reflect back on... Uh, Aristides Suja Mendes, who was a uh, Portuguese consul in France, in Bordeaux, who signed mm. tens of thousands of visas when he knew Salazar, the dictator, did not want those visas signed. So there's tremendous, mm. in fact, he's one of the righteous um, in, in Yad Vashem. Oh, okay. um, he's a very important figure. And uh, there's a whole community and institution here on Long Island, which um, tries to gather his children and grandchildren, not his children, sorry, the people he saved and the children and grandchildren of the people he saved. There's the Sousa Mendes Foundation, too. Um, and Mendes, yeah. the way I am saying it, I'm, sp- I'm saying it the way it's spelled, but really it's pronounced mensch which is also interesting. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Oh, so, that's a so anyway, so lovely these, linguistic term. Yeah. <laughs> so the Portuguese were incredibly kind. Salazar was not an anti-Semite. That's also interesting, since most dictators came to power in the 30s with anti-Semitism as one of their, you know, truncheons. But his right. best friend was a man named Moses Amzalak, who for 50 years was the head Mm. of the Jewish community in Lisbon. They had gone to college together. They had studied economics together. Amzalek was quite a right-wing conservative. So, you know, his politics and Salazar's kind of matched. And since there was no anti-Semitism, that was perfectly um, okay for Amzalek to support the dictator. 
But in any case, um, that made it a big difference. Uh, was there anti-Semitism? I'm sure some of the listeners will say, oh my God, there has to have been some anti-Semitism. Well, there was the Catholic Church <laughs> and people did hear about Jews, um, you know, and their bad behavior or their uh, attitudes toward Jesus or other kinds of religious um, prejudices, but not enough to make a difference. That's the interesting part. And there was a secret Mm. police and the secret police was sort of split between those who leaned toward England and those who leaned toward Nazi Germany. And of course, those police were also Hmm. imbued with some anti-Semitism. So I'm not saying it was zero, but I am saying it's surprisingly little. And I think that's very important in terms of the question of, you know, what what, what was it like for when they arrived? Yeah. And what's striking to me, too, is that it seems like these instances of kindness and of welcoming were more, you know, sort of at least stand out more in the archival material. Definitely. Um, perhaps than the instances of anti-Semitism. Definitely. Um, um, because the anti-Semitism might have been just among those people who then didn't come out to help. And the other right. part that I think is super important is it's not clear that the peasantry knew these people were Jewish. They saw them as victims mm. of war. They saw them as refugees. And even after, and they'd probably been experiencing that with Spain for well, except the Spaniards preferred going toward France, not toward Salazar. So they didn't didn't get the Spaniards were actually (laughs) turned back by Salazar to Spain. So that was pretty Ah. horrible. Um, But after the war, I read I didn't do much research on this that the same refugees at the border uh, were kind to Germans who were fleeing. You know former Nazis who were fleeing. So it's not clear to me that it's about Hmm. Jews or it's about kindness to people in need from people who were incredibly Hmm. poor. Right. Right. It's not about, yeah, it's not about the political context or the, yeah. Exactly. It's just about helping people. Exactly. Interesting. So when these, so when these men and women and these sometimes families, arrived in Portugal. Um, I guess, what were their lives like? Like what sites, you know, you've talked about these geographies of emotional life. What sites were the most impactful to their experiences? And I guess we can talk a little bit about gender experiences and gender differences too. Okay. Well, in terms of sites, I listed three in my little outline to myself. So I was thinking about consulates, I was thinking about aid organizations, and I was thinking about shipping agencies. So let me see if I can pull that together. Hmm. So first of all, these refugees were forbidden to work. They had no money. So they needed charity from Jewish and non-Jewish organizations or from relatives in the West. So some of these organizations were, one I mentioned already, the Joint Distribution Committee, um, which is an American, American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Others were the Quakers mm-hmm. or the Unitarians and the local Lisbon Jewish community, only made up of about 2,000 people. They all helped Jewish refugees, mm-hmm. kept records of their health, their moods, their financial needs. So if I wanted to look for emotions, I could find them in the Quaker records. I could huh. find them in the JDC records. Um, you know, is this person despondent? Is this person need uh, tranquilizers? I mean, all that stuff was there. 
The JDC also supported wow. a soup kitchen set up by the Lisbon Jewish community. And men and women, often with children, went to these agencies together. So men and women also waited on lines together or aimed for different consulates. You know, like you go to this consulate, I'll go to this consulate, we'll stand on line and see if anybody gets in. They're trying to get visas right. often to what they said was anywhere. In one family, the husband wait, this, this is a quote, waited, waited, and waited on consulate lines. His wife stayed in their room mm. typing letters to dozens of Americans asking for an affidavit. Um, and an affidavit was a piece of paper signed and, um, and uh, stamped by a, um, oh, what are they called? The ones who stamp your signature so that it's a real- A notary? Signature. A notary, thank you. They had to be signed and stamped by a notary that said they would pay hmm. for this refugee and the, would not allow the refugee to fall on government welfare so that these affidavits uh. were crucial. I think men suffered more than women in these situation, uh, situations. One man in an aid office simply declared, no one here knows who I am. And it was true. No one knew if he had been a judge hmm. or a shoemaker. He couldn't overcome the gap between how other people saw him and how he had been seen. So men had mm. public positions they had lost. They had been the breadwinners. Work for them meant class right. and political and gender relevance. And fewer women had become professionals in that decade or business owners. They too had lost homes and friends, but mm, they were not as many public positions in that they had in a highly sexist society. So I think right. men suffered more from this downward mobility. Um, few Jewish refugees had enough of their own money, even though these had all been middle-class people or had been 90% middle-class people. They didn't have enough of their own money. And if they stayed longer than they had planned and their visas ran out or they couldn't find a ship ticket, they had to ask for charity. And that brings me to the shipping agencies. Right. The lines at shipping agencies were endless. Now, ship travel was limited. First of all, there's a war going on, uh, and, it became the, right. the, and it became more <laughs> scarce after Pearl Harbor when American ships didn't cross anymore for refugees. So many wrote about never-ending waiting, and some grew hopeless. But they still had to persist, mm. and they did because they needed to leave Europe. There was kind of a joke which people told each other, which was that uh, the Germans were on the Spanish border. They would take Spain in three hours and they would take Portugal by phone. So that tells you what both the joke and the fear that these refugees had mm. about staying. The other thing you asked about gender differences, but I also wanted to mention generational differences. Because the mm, gender yes, differences weren't quite as stark as they were, for example, in my book, Between Dignity and Despair. Um, in, as refugees, men felt, as I said, more downward mobility, but men and women stood on the same lines and they had the same problems and they faced the same issues. They were sort of equalized yes. once they yes, but, were all in the same desperate situation. Right, but... Mm generational differences were far more pronounced. Once in Portugal, young people felt adventure. 
but their parents confronted mm. downward social mobility. Um, the young people felt freedom from the Nazis, freedom to roam open villages and cities. Their parents waited on lines and more lines to move on, always fearing a German attack. The children went to movies. Mm. They actually watched American movies like Robin Hood. They watched these movies, Hmm. I guess, not understanding a word, but having a good time. Most of them didn't go to school. Um, They played with others at the border. They went to beaches. They had these new, exciting freedoms while their parents worried and Hmm. worried and worried. Um, And then there were role reversals. Some young people got jobs. For example, young people with language skills got jobs with a joint distribution committee um, or with some of the social work agencies and helped support their parents so that um, social workers noticed that there was some tension between parents who wanted their kids to behave in the old way and kids who were discovering, young Mm. people, when I say kids, 18-year-olds, let's say, who were discovering that they could stand on their own two feet. So the gender differences were minor, but the generational differences were quite strong. And a lot of young people who wrote memoirs talk about that. One woman said, my mother and I traded places. I became her mother. Mm. So I think that was pretty important. It's interesting too, because I do think that that is, I mean, that's sort of a universal truth in in being human is that there's a point when that happens. And then it sort of seems like it was put into stark relief in these extremely difficult circumstances yes. among refugees. But you Portugal. also see it here in um, the States where you see li- younger children become the interpreters for their parents because they pick up language faster. Absolutely. So you saw that there too, where some of them sp- pick it up Portuguese if they were there for a year, whereas their parents struggled. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this sort of leads us nicely into my next question, actually, which is um, what were the coping mechanisms of refugees? You know, we've talked about this sort of spectrum of emotions that people were feeling. Um, what were their sites and spaces of, of support? Well, I think, again, I jotted down two things in particular. There are two obvious ways of coping. The first was After going to the post office and the consulates and the aid agencies, refugees sat in cafes in the plazas of Lisbon Mm. and other small towns. Uh, There they traded rumors, worrying about the successes of the German armies, consoled each other. They shared their situation. Um, They created emotional and social networks there. Uh, One woman said that she Mm. would give up a hot meal in order to sit in a cafe and spend time with those who shared her fate. And that word in German is there is Schicksalsgenossen. So people who are part of Mm. your fate. Um, Another young man wrote Mm. that um, he was told when you arrive in a, in a small town in Portugal, just go to the local, the central cafe and you'll find refugees there speaking German and French so that, Everyone knew, go to mm. a cafe. You could also buy ship tickets under, you know, under the table in cafes. Um, and so it, you could find forgers in cafes to you know, uh, sign certain documents. So there was a good uh, network right. that happened there. So that was one way of coping both emotionally and strategically. 
And the second way of coping, I think, became these letters I talked about at the beginning, writing letters and receiving them. So writing letters help to maintain contact with loved ones, even though mails slowed down and were censored. But there was young, one young man, I write about him, who desperately sought mail from his family in the United States. He was stuck in Portugal. They were already in the U.S. And he was so upset if he didn't get a letter in time. And he poured out his frustrations um, when he couldn't get the documents he needed from the U.S. consul. Um, I should add that when people Mm -hmm. heard I was working on this, at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, I actually got some phone calls and the young man I'm describing, um, his son gave me these letters. So they weren't always in archives oh, either. Wow. Sometimes individuals just heard about it and I used those letters. They were quite amazing. Letters brought good news about relatives in the United States, for example, um, or those same relatives in the U.S. trying desperately to bring refugees to the States, but not always succeeding. But letters also brought desperate pleas for food from relatives in Nazi-occupied Central and Eastern Europe. Um, On the one hand, letters showed life, but when letters were returned from Central and Eastern Europe with addressee unknown, of course, that created fear. So the letters were a way of coping, but not always, you know, with a happily ever after um, result. I see. So they would cause, that makes sense. They've caused anxiety if they came back and hadn't reached their intended recipient. Exactly. Exactly. So so I guess my last question is sort of what happened as, as refugees started to depart Portugal, I suppose both to those who were left behind and still waiting as well as those who, you know, were departing. So what kind of emotions did they feel as they were leaving towards, you know, another uncertain future? Was it, you know, very clearly happiness or was it a more complicated emotional experience? Well, it's always more complicated. First, a word about (laughs) those um, who stayed behind. One of the things I write about in the cafe is these were all close associates. I wouldn't say friends because they all knew they were splitting in different directions, but they were very close associates. They were very important to each other, but they were also Mm. rivals. They were all trying to get visas. They were all standing on the same lines. They were all trying to get the same ship tickets. So to that extent, the relationship is very, very complicated in terms of their feelings. So there's one case that I can think of right now where Um, someone gets her visa and everyone in the cafe jumps up and asks her, how'd you get that? First, they're interested in how she got it. And then, of course, they congratulate her and go to the ship with her. Um, But to to wave goodbye with white hankies, which is what they all did. Um, But that was, you know, uh, it was complicated. I mean, she's going and I'm stuck. So that was those staying behind. Those who left, of course, there was relief, right? After so much waiting and worrying, they were finally heading to a new future. But the future was frightening in terms of language, jobs in the middle of a worldwide depression, cultures they didn't know, 
Um, and then there were those who knew they would miss Europe and their Europeanness and their native languages. These were usually the older, certainly not the kids as much as the older people. Um, there was one writer, who Eugen Tillinger, who summed it up. Uh, he wrote that he remembered as he was leaving and he sees the uh, cityscape of Lisbon. He remembered, quote, the most beautiful scenes from the European past, the towers of Prague, the sweet Austrian landscape, Paris, a whole life spent in Europe. So you can see that it's a mixed bag. They're happy to get out of this hell, but that they're leaving a lot of their life behind, not to mention loved ones and friends whom they hope they'll see again. They don't know they won't see them again. Um, and they're worried. Yeah, it sort of strikes me as a form of mourning. Yeah, absolutely. In a way. Absolutely. Especially the way he writes it. The People most- are really dying. Yeah. And, yeah. Right, go on. Well, but then also of, you're one, mourning, one you're mourning things, a lost life. Yeah, but one of the things, it's, it's mourning a lost life for sure. But one of the things I ask at the end of the book is, what did these refugees know about the Holocaust? So they're leaving in 42, 43. Some of them don't leave till the mid-50s because they're really stuck. Um, it's not clear hmm. they knew about right. extermination. They knew their families were in terrible fear, in terrible distress, living in cramped, cold conditions and hungry. Did they know Mm. about the exterminations? I don't think so. But, you know, future historians can say I'm wrong. (laughs) So we'll see in the future. (sighs) Right, right. Oh, well, it's just, it was, it's such a fascinating project, Marianne, and it's such a great book. I enjoyed, I really enjoyed reading it so much. Grateful, Um, thank you. uh, It's, yeah, it's a very important history and sort of, you know, as we, as you were talking about at the beginning, as Holocaust studies expands, you know, as, as, as sort of the canon has been written, perhaps, and we're sort of finding new topics to write about, um, some of the topics are sort of obscure and some really fill in these very important gaps that we didn't realize were missing. And I think that this is one of those books. Um, so thank you. It's very excellent. Thank excellent you. Work. Um, before I let you go, I do want to um, want to ask what you're working on next. Well, this summer I was going to take a break, but my break turned out not to be so much fun <laughs> because I'm stuck you know, under COVID-19, but I am working, I'm an, I'm an editor, uh, co-editor of the Cambridge history of the Holocaust, which is overall Mm. edited by Mark Roseman and there are four volumes and I'm co-editing volume three with Natalia Alexion. And that's mostly Ah, focused on victims. So it's going to be, again, a very broad examination of, uh, of geographies, of gender, of class, um, of resistance, of victimization, you name it. And we have wonderful scholars who will be working with us. So that's a project that's happening now and ongoing for the next year or so. And then I did have a, a lovely project with another colleague 
um, which we've put on a halt for a little while until we can all come out of lockdown. And that is we'd like to do a book, an edited book, about Jewish domestic servants in early modern and modern Europe. Um, and I wrote, I wrote an article, oh, quite a while ago about love letters between a Jewish maid and her young peddler fiance, you know, they're, they're called Brautbriefe, you know, um, sort of bride mm-hmm. letters. Um, and I'm, we're hoping mm-hmm. to work on, uh, domestics, Jewish domestics and the families for which they work, the relationships they had. Um, there was a lot of exploitation of these women, not just economic, but also sexual. So we want to look at all of these different um, aspects, but that's on hold until we can get out of our apartments. <laughs> so those are the right. two things I'm looking at right now. Well, I look forward to uh, to seeing where those projects go, and I hope Thank that you. we can all we can all get out soon. Yes, I do hope. <laughs> not too so. soon, though. I hope so for the <laughs> listeners' sake too. Yes, yes, me as well. All right, well, Marion, thank you so much for um, for coming on the show and for talking about your fantastic um, new book, Hitler's Jewish Refugees, with us. It's been it's been a really wonderful time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye bye now. Let's take care. <laughs>